Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of the Emergent Ecosystem, a Zimbabwean podcast about ecosystems, how they support our lives, and how we can steer them to create a better future. I'm Scott Richardson. This podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and most other podcast apps. If you enjoy the Emergent Ecosystem, subscribing on any of these apps will make it easier to find, download, and listen to this podcast. Now we often hear that trees are being felled at an alarming rate, but how can we measure that rate of loss? One tool is remote sensing, using satellite images to see changes in vegetation over time. So this week we'll look at how satellites and computers can enable us to monitor the losses and also progress in reforestation projects. My guest today is John Whitaker. He is keenly interested in the natural world, especially spiders, He studied electrical and computer engineering at the University of Cape Town and now works as a data science consultant and educator. John Whitaker, welcome to the show. Hey Scott, it's good to be here. Good to have you, John. You work as a data scientist. What exactly does a data scientist do? So it's a very broad sort of catch-all term, but the general idea is taking in some data, usually from multiple sources, and trying to go from tons and tons of just raw information into something that gives some actual insight. Uh, So that can mean just drawing out key bits of the data, or it can mean using a tool like machine learning to actually use the data as inputs and do some predictions and to derive something new from that. But either way, it's always just taking in data and giving out something that can help drive decisions in one way or another. And how did you get into the field of data science? So I kind of stumbled into it accidentally. My field of study at university was electrical and computer engineering. But even before I went off to university to study, I spent a year working on a couple of different uh, research projects. And then during university, kept also doing these kind of extra sort of outside projects. And um, I had no idea that it was called data science, but that's exactly what I was doing. And so when it came near the end of my studies and I was asked to help uh, design and teach a course on data science, it's suddenly clicked that this was the perfect term to describe what I had been doing all along. And so those skills that I've been building up all kind of fed really perfectly into that as a field. You mentioned that you had done some work prior to studying. What did you do before you studied? So a mutual friend who knew that I was getting into programming and computer stuff um, got hold of me and asked if I'd be interested in helping out on a research project. So it was actually to do with resource ecology. So it was a survey of baobab trees in Zimbabwe was the first project, uh, just trying to get an estimate of how many trees there were, and how large of a resource it was for potential harvesting of the fruit. And so um, I came on board mainly to do a lot of the mapping side and then the species distribution modeling. So it was all very new, but I was able to figure out how to get all of that to work. Um, and along the way, we found all sorts of extra interesting findings. Um, so I did a lot of work in the field, then had to deal with all of that GPS data and mapping and ultimately end up with some way of predicting how many trees there would be in a given area. So it was a really great project, um, I think super beneficial, but also perfect for me sort of starting out um, to find some useful outlets for the tools I'd been developing and you know, being able to program and so on. Very great learning experience. And then the success of that project led into a number of follow-ons in the same sort of vein um, over that whole year before I went off to university and even into university. That's very interesting, Jono. How did you actually go about counting the baobab trees? So the baobabs are essentially the perfect uh, subject for that kind of work. You can imagine many animals are shy and hard to see. 
there's almost nothing as conspicuous as a baobab tree. These are huge trees, often in grasslands, so they stand out even from a very far distance. So we were able to drive along roads and log every time we recorded a tree within a certain distance. We had rangefinders, and so we did some counting by foot, but a lot of the sampling was driving along. And the nice thing is, again, because they're so large, you can count trees that are very distant from the road, and you can ignore the edges of the road. So for many trees, you'd worry about sampling along a path like that because obviously the human traffic might influence the distribution. Um, but for baobabs, most of these trees are hundreds, if not thousands of years old, and you can kind of ignore those closest to the road that might have been spread by the human traffic, and you can focus on some sort of intermediate distance to do your sampling. Yeah, so we collected all of that data, and so that gives us a number of counts of along this stretch of road, there was 12 trees, and we can kind of estimate the density at that point. But then to extend that over the whole of the country, we do something called a, a species distribution model, or actually a density model. Um, and so what this is, is taking in environmental conditions. So things like the average temperature, the rainfall, whether or not there's frost, what the altitude is, what the soil is like, taking this data, which we can get for the whole of the country, and then using that as inputs and training a model. So a machine learning model that's able to learn the mapping between those environmental variables and the density of trees. And so for the, the points that we've sampled, that's kind of the training data. And then you can use that model that now knows its relationship between the inputs and the outputs. You can use that to make predictions for a new location, even if you haven't visited it. Um, so this was really nice. It gave us a tool that could give us a map over the whole country of what we expect the density to be. Um, and that lets us get estimates even for areas that we couldn't visit for one reason or another. So that was a sort of basic approach. And then obviously, once you have the model, you need to validate it and make sure that you're making uh, somewhat reasonable predictions. Sure. So Jono, what exactly is machine learning? Um, so when you talk about a machine learning model, in this case, we're, we're basically talking about something that's able to capture a, a trend or a relationship. So in this case, between the environmental variables and the tree density, but more generally, just some relationship between those inputs and some output. Um, so we call this supervised machine learning. You give the computer many examples and have it learn the pattern. Um, and that pattern can be as simple as a straight line relationship. So maybe um, if there's higher rainfall, you expect a higher density of trees, right? And, and if that relationship is linear, then you can describe it with um, sort of formula for a straight line. And that's kind of like the, the sort of simplest version of machine learning. Now, obviously, there's uh, much fancier techniques. And so we kind of build on that to get these more complicated models that can learn, you know, nonlinear relationships that can take into account multiple different inputs and the combinations of those inputs. Um, but broadly, it's still doing the same thing. It's looking at a bunch of examples and trying to figure out what pattern can map those inputs to those outputs in, in all the examples that it's shown. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You did this before you studied. And since then, what have you been doing? This was like, like I said, it was um, happening during my, my gap year. And um, so in between finishing school and heading off to university, so that was really great in terms of giving me a lot of confidence and a bunch of extra little skills. Um, so then, as I said, I studied electrical and computer engineering. But that was always almost because while that was an interest of mine, I thought it would be a useful set of tools and techniques to bring back into something else. So I think my initial goal was to take the electrical engineering and the programming back into something like conservation. I really enjoyed studying that, but I ended up um, trending more and more towards the software side and the programming side. Then before I even finished university, I got a job at a data science company, both teaching data science, so teaching a course on 
machine learning and programming, the stuff that I'd been doing for, at that stage, something like four or five years. And then that course transitioned into also being able to do a lot of different contract work. So I work with something called Zindi Africa, who do data science competitions. So taking that same kind of problem, you've got some inputs and some desired outputs. Can you build a model to map between the two? Um, taking those and making them somewhat of a competition. So my job is always to actually source the data and prepare it and frame it in such a way that our participants can sort of tackle the problem and see how well they do. So that's a big part of my, my day to day. I also still teach a couple of different courses, introductory data science, machine learning, and big data. And then I work for some companies here in Zimbabwe, going back to just the same old projects like the bear bad mapping, um, but working on a couple of different species and also doing a bit on monitoring deforestation and trying to work together with people who are planting trees to make sure that we can monitor the progress and see how well we're doing trying to combat that deforestation. Sure. And how do you use data science to learn more about deforestation? Just uh, once you have that, that data science lens, it's, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat addictive. You, you start pointing it at all, all different areas in life. And so in this case, we can see, well, okay, do we have some data? Turns out even though especially in places like Zimbabwe, there's not necessarily much uh, government curation of data or manual data collection. Um, but we still have this one secret weapon, which is that we have satellite imagery. Um, and satellites tend to cover the whole of the world or, or the whole of one region uh, without much reference to borders. And so we can look at that satellite imagery and then we can start to treat that as our input into various different models or um, techniques. So whereas before you might go in and measure something and then use that as your training data, with satellite, the great thing is you can both see uh, visually trends that are happening. So you can monitor perhaps as forest gives way to cropland or as over time, there's different cycles of growth and you can, you can pick out patterns that represent crops or patterns that represent grassland or forest. Then if you have some data, like maybe you know where some farms are, uh, you can start to train models to recognize patterns within that. So um, in the case of deforestation, yeah, we very much look at um, the change in that satellite imagery over time and use that to kind of guesstimate what is happening on, on the ground level. Um, and then ideally, we can try and validate that with some in-field sampling. But yeah, the majority of it is just looking at satellite data and seeing what we can figure out from that. And have you had any surprising findings? It's still ongoing, um, but we can definitely start to see some of the changes that are happening. One thing that was interesting for me is a lot of the messaging around this issue tends to treat it as something fairly recent. And people look at areas that have very few trees and they sort of bemoan the current situation, you know, as of the last few years. Um, but actually, when you go back and look in the satellite imagery, a lot of Zimbabwe has been in a fairly dire state for a long time. So this is a gradual process that's been happening. It's just becoming more and more apparent as those areas stretch further and further. And um, so it was interesting for me to see even historically, you know, 20, 30 years back, we were already battling with um, a lot of loss of forests. So... That was one, one thing that surprised me, I guess, was that this wasn't a new phenomenon. This has been something that's ongoing. And the other was kind of in line with that, realizing that, you know, when you look at what's driving this, I think some people tend to have the idea that this is malicious, you know, companies or people chopping down trees for profit and doing it without thought for the environment. I mean, especially as we work with people who are sort of more on the ground and, and seeing the situation, nobody likes cutting down trees. And when you look at the the deforestation that's happening in Zimbabwe, it's not the kind of mass, you know, slash and burn that's happening in other places in the world. It's people very reluctantly cutting down what they need to survive. And so I think that was another big sort of aha moment for me was seeing that the way this change is happening is not huge fields of trees being chopped down at once by some evil corporate. It's 
slow change over many, many years as one by one, the trees are taken as they're needed, um, either to cure tobacco or to cook on, or maybe to feed the city, which has growing energy demands and not always the right amount of electricity supply. So seeing that it's gradual sort of change and it's really driven by kind of the broader economics of the situation and just the desperation of Zimbabwe as a country. So that was, I think, um, maybe counter to the, the narrative we'd expect of huge chunks of trees being chopped down all at once and being driven by profit and greed. It's not, it's driven by, by need, right? And so you can't really blame the person who's chopping down that one tree to cure their tobacco to earn a little bit of income. It's really more systemic and something that needs to be addressed, uh, taking that into account. Sure, that is quite a different perspective, Jono. So once you've collected this data, how is it used? So, I mean, in this case, I'm just working with, you know, a couple of small organizations who are trying to um, do reforesting. So they're planting trees, they're working with people to add value to trees and to help put up a sort of maybe more sustainable pattern. But it really has to come from the ground and from the, the demands of uh, the different locations. So it's really cool to see what they're doing. I guess my role is, is mostly just monitoring. So helping show where there is a need and to say that, yes, we are losing trees and we need to do something about it. And then as we go into the next phase of the project, which is um, planting more trees and supporting and maybe trying to build up resources that can be, be harvested more long-term sustainably, um, just monitoring those and seeing, are we seeing an increase in the tree cover over time like we hope? Um, are there places where we're planting trees, continuing to have trees going forward? So it's very much just a, a sort of monitoring and evaluation aspect and maybe a little bit towards the, the selection of the sites. Um, so the main work is not being done by satellite or machine learning. The main work is being done by human beings on the ground interacting with uh, the people who will be using these trees and the people who will be benefiting from the project. Uh, my involvement in this case is just as an eye in the sky um, sort of keeping track of things and trying to get some extra information that they can use to make decisions. I find that remote sensing, um, yeah, that, that's its sort of special niche. Um, but it's really useful for all sorts of monitoring, uh, maybe water levels in dams or uh, movements of populations, establishments of, um, say, informal settlements or whatever. At all different levels, it's really useful as a tool for informing policy and for guiding those then human interventions on the ground, just to give them that extra bit of context and bit of information to help guide those decisions. The last question I wanted to ask, John, is if you could imagine the best future, what would it be like? We're getting more and more crazy tools at our disposal. You know, in every field, there's kind of an explosion of what's possible and what's achievable thanks to technology. But the tipping point will come, I think, when people can more and more move towards using that, uh, adding back in some humanity. So we have these really great techniques and tools and technology, um, but it's still very much being used for monetary gain or for sort of corporate interest or for uh, gratification of some sort of subset of humanity, right? Um, we we sort of feeding into the demands of maybe more developed countries or, or people who already have lots. So I think if we can get a shift, not necessarily of new technology, that's that's happening and that's great. Um, but if people saying, how can we use this technology that we have um, in a more equitable way and in a more beneficial way to say, what can we do with this technology that we already have? Um, but maybe so that the gains aren't focused towards the top of the wealth chain and then instead spread out a little bit more. So I think that would be my, my default answer, you know, with all that we've been talking about in mind, and if we could start getting, um, yeah, just a bit more of a compassion-driven development and, and pushing out some of that uh, towards the, the people who are maybe not so well served by today's technology.
Um, and I think that has to come from a place of, yeah, having some reason. Um, I mean, personally, as a Christian, I think we're all called to, to love one another and serve one another. And I think that's very counter to serving our own interests. And if we could try and get that more outward looking focus and bring that back into our technology, I think that starts to steer us into a future that's, that's nicer. Oh, thank you so much, Jono. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. If people would like to find out more about you and what you do, could you point them in any direction? I am Jono Whitaker, J-O-H-N-O-W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R on Twitter. Um, and that's also my email address, Whitaker at Gmail or at Yahoo, um, or pretty much any other platform you care to try. Um, so Twitter is uh, one, one way to reach me. I also have a website where I post experiments and little bits of research in the data science and machine learning space. So that is datasciencecastnet.com or datasciencecastnet.home.blog. And there's also a way to contact me through that page as well. Sure. Thank you very much, Jono. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It was great to, to catch up and chat. Sure. It's been a pleasure. That was Jono Whitaker, data science consultant and educator. You can find out more about his work on his website, datasciencecastnet.home.blog. That is D-A-T-A-S-C-I-E-N-C-C-A-S-T-N-E-T dot H-O-M-E dot B-L-O-G. Or find him on Twitter at Jono Whitaker, J-O-H-N-O. W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R If you enjoyed this episode, please check out other episodes. Thanks very much for listening and until next week, cheers!